Our reading tonight uh, comes from 1 Thessalonians, um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, which is on page 959 of the Red Bibles. So I'll give you a a few seconds to uh, flip there so you can follow along. Uh, That's 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure impure motives or trickery, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we may not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you, live, that you lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, You accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Thus, they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is spoken and heard, really heard, that is, heard for what it really is, the word of God, What he's done in Jesus Christ, it's not just some person's ideas, it does something. It has this kind of remarkable power about it by the Spirit of God. It makes Christians and forms them into Christian community. Uh, The gospel is intensely personal, but it is never isolatingly private. As, As God Um, calls people to turn from the idols of their hearts. That's the way the Apostle put it uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn to God from idols. All those myriad ways in which we make good things ultimate things. 
the ways in which we love or fear little things a medium amount, or medium things a large amount, or large things far too little. As God, in other words, calls people to turn from the disordered loves of their hearts, all that mess at the very centre of our being, to, to turn towards him to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus to come from heaven to finish fixing up this mess. <coughs> we wait in community. And it's no ordinary community. It is a supernaturally powered community full of joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we're going to call tonight gospel community. And the brand new church plant in the Greek city of Thessalonica with its, I don't know, perhaps several dozen new believers, maybe as many as in this room tonight, they'd known Christ for possibly as much as two whole months, you know, since April, maybe just June, actually one month. They tasted something of the beauty of gospel community. Later in 1 Thessalonians, we'll come to in a couple of weeks, Paul writes that when it, when it comes to loving one another, they have no need for anyone to write to them because they've been taught by God how to love one another. Mind you, he doesn't say that in order to tell them to sit back and relax. Rather, in what the great English church leader of the last century, John Stott, called the characteristic posture of the Christian life, Paul calls them to live out this loving gospel community more and more. What Jesus does is once for all. What we do in living for him is more and more and more and more. Gospel community is like riding a bicycle. Not so much in the sense that you can never forget how to do it. Rather, I mean it in the sense that if you stop pedaling and moving forward more and more, you know what happens on a bike? You fall over. And so the Apostle Paul, separated from this young church by an ugly mob running him out of town, writes to them so that they will more and more live out this gospel community. And the way that he instructs them is with great skill. Um, he, he tells them about himself and how he related to them in order to instruct them about how they're to relate to each other. He tells them about himself so that they can imitate him just as he imitates Christ. And as he instructs them, so he instructs us. And we're going to break it out under three headings. You see here what gospel community requires, the love that gospel community enables, and the goal that gospel community aims at. What gospel community requires, the love that it enables, the goal that it aims at, and then we're going to kind of conclude by looking at the alternative to gospel community, pseudo-community, as something to watch out for. So first then, what gospel community requires? Uh, Paul starts by reciting the circumstances under which he arrived at Thessalonica, and they weren't very different from the circumstances under which he left Thessalonica. That is, he's persecuted and shamefully mistreated uh, by an ugly mob. Uh, they mistreated him in the neighbouring town of Philippi, just uh, a few miles uh, to the east of Thessalonica. Uh, and so he packs up his bags, he hightails it out of Philippi, he heads west towards Thessalonica. 
And despite the fact that he's been persecuted and hounded, he's up for more dangerous gospel proclamation as he comes to this new town. And he describes the spiritual power that enables him to make this courageous decision, to pick himself up and to dust himself off and to keep proclaiming, to put his chin out in order to get smacked again. Listen to what he says. We had courage in our God, this is verse 2, to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak. Not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. <clears throat> what the apostle is saying is this. He lives his life with an audience of one. He lives his life with an audience of one, the true and living God. You, you see how he puts it? He says that uh, just as he's been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, so he speaks. The, the fact that he keeps on going, that he dusts himself off, that he keeps proclaiming, that he's up for being smashed by another mob, that's for one reason. That's because he's been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel. The word for approve here is actually a really sort of lovely word. It means uh, something like um, put something or someone to the test and find that they pass the test and so they get the great big stamp of approval. And God tested Paul to see whether he could be entrusted with the task of proclaiming to the Gentiles the message of the gospel. And notice that he doesn't just test things like you know, skills and gifts and physical capacity, important but basically superficial things. No, God tests the heart. And actually, that, that word for test is the same word for approve. And the result of the testing is that God has been approved, sorry, Paul has been approved by God. He's God's approval, commissioned and sent by God, and that means that Paul lives with an incredible, personal, inner freedom. He has God's stamp of approval on his heart. Uh, in his letter to the Romans, he puts it like this. If God is for us, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? To which the answer is, of course, actually, Paul, heaps of people are against you. There are great swathes of people across the whole Mediterranean that are against you. The mob in Philippi was against you. The mob in Thessalonica was against you. Endless people hate your guts. To which Paul says, compared to God being for me, compared to being approved by God, compared to being commissioned by God and set on a trajectory by God with his incredible grace-filled yes to me. I don't even notice those things. I don't give a toss about those people. They don't trouble me at all. They don't even register for me. Paul has an audience of one. He cares about one person's approval and he has it. It's God's. As an audience that tests his heart and who is pleased 
with him. It's one of the lovely gifts of this letter that uh, three times actually, twice positively and once negatively about uh, his opponents, Paul talks about pleasing God. This, this, this possibility, the reality actually, he says that the Corinthians are in fact doing so. Uh, sorry, the Thessalonians are doing so. Uh, that God takes pleasure in his people. Not just kind of grudging mm, or rightness. Pleasure. He's pleased by you. And that means Paul has a glorious inner strength and freedom. That powers him. And the fact that he has an audience of one is precisely what empowers integrity in relation to the many. It's really, really important that you see it. Paul, he describes himself as free from temptations to be in it for himself. I mean, you just try and put yourself into Paul's situation. He's been run out of town uh, in Philippi just next door. He comes to Thessalonica. You can imagine all the things that might be going on in your heart, all the kind of yearnings and desires, and surely, please, let these people like me, and I'm, I just want to get some success here, and can't I actually do something here instead of it being ruined by these people that are getting... All the sort of swirling mess of hopes and fears and anxieties, and Paul's got none of it. His appeal to them to receive the message of the gospel of God, to, to bear fruit amongst them, doesn't come from a heart of deception or impure motives or trickery. He's got none of that sort of junk. He's not trying to wheedle something out of them. He's not going to water down the truth of the gospel that their sin is in need of a saviour because it might make the message more palatable. He's not going to make demands on them that they treat him like royalty when he's a slave of Jesus. At the same time, it means that he's free from the temptation to flatter them. You see what he says? He says he doesn't, he didn't seek praise from mortals. He didn't seek praise from them. He didn't seek praise from anyone. He doesn't care about the praise of mortals. Why? Because he has the praise of God. He doesn't need their approval. He's not troubled very much whether they think highly of him or lowly of him. For precisely the reason that he has God's approval. God has tested his heart and approved him to be entrusted with the gospel. And what I want you to feel here is the kind of the deep paradox and the profound truth that is at the heart of Christian community here. The only way to make sure that you'll treat other people well with integrity and honour is by not making it your aim to please them that they be happy with you. It's only because Paul plays to the audience of one, the living and true God, that means he acts with honour and integrity in relation to the many, the Thessalonians. Because he doesn't need their approval, because he already has God's approval, he can treat them so well that he says that they dearly love him. If you're desperate for someone's approval, what you will get at best is their pity and at worst, their disrespect. But precisely because he cares more about what God thinks than what they think, it means that he relates to them with integrity rather than in desperation or manipulation. Do you feel this paradox? The only way to treat people well is to not worry too much about what you th people think when you treat them. You know this in your own experience. When someone sets out to impress you or wants to demonstrate how good they are, they achieve the exact opposite. 
It's when a person is not particularly interested in whether you think highly of them that you think highly of them. And having this audience of one, this resting in the approval of one, creates an entirely different and a radically beautiful kind of community when you bring those people together. Notice, second, what it enables. A remarkably vulnerable love. The image of the Apostle Paul in so many people's minds is of a harsh, cold, even cruel ideologue. Someone only at home with narrow ideas and nasty judgments and pretty much nothing could be further from the truth. That, that's someone's view of Paul and you're just taking a 1 Thessalonians uh, because it just, it's a joke. What we see here in 1 Thessalonians, both in this chapter and in the next, is an almost embarrassingly emotionally engaged man. This is a guy with his heart completely on his sleeve, gushing about his affection for this Christian community, which he doesn't just feel, but he expresses. And he doesn't just express with words, but with actions. It's impossible to read this, isn't it, and fail to see that there is a deep love an enormous giving of his heart to these people in affection and care. Paul says that he was gentle among them. Um, literally, the word is he was innocent as an infant. And then changing the image, he says he was like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. Uh, I didn't have much to do with babies. Uh, growing up, I didn't have the sort of cousins that had babies that meant I was a baby sort of teenager. I didn't, I just, I, the only first tiny baby I ever hold was my own. And it's, it's incredible. The sort of forcefulness of the feelings of care and protection and commitment and dedication that the sheer smallness and neediness of a tiny baby causes to swell up within you. Now, pretty soon they turn into teenagers and that's all gone. But when they're tiny, when they're tiny, Deep tenderness and devotion. And Paul tells these Thessalonians that that's exactly how he feels about them. Or he goes on now more in, in an adult mode that there was such a deep care that they, they weren't kind of just a task for Paul. That he cared so deeply for them that he shared with them not only the gospel of God but his very self. This is the real Apostle Paul. Not the straw man that some love to hate, the fabricated apostle who's a hardline theologian full of hardline teachings and no feelings. Don't you see? Here's an almost cringeworthy emotionality. Here's a heart laid bare description about just how much his infections, his affections are engaged with these people who'd become so dear to him. And notice he's very un-Australian. He's quite Middle Eastern actually. He doesn't just feel it, he says it. Imagine saying this stuff to you should try it to someone. Say this stuff, you've become so very dear to us. We don't do that, do we? But the point is this, you see, when you play to an audience of one, when the power for how you relate to other people comes from the approval of you by God who tests your heart, that in Jesus Christ you have God's great yes to you, when you are rock-solid confident in that, well, the more and more your confidence is grounded there, then the more and more you'll be like 
this. You won't hide away. You won't hold back. You won't shrivel your heart in self-protection, anxious about letting people into your life and making sure that you keep them at a distance. You won't kind of require that their hurts don't get too close to you because hurt is always messy and complicated. There'll be such a freedom in your soul to not withdraw in indifference to people, but to give yourself in profound vulnerability, opening yourself like this to others so that they see you and you see them. It's, it's very paradoxical, isn't it? You live your life playing to the audience of one, and what that means is that you open your heart like this to the many. But gospel community, powered by the audience of one and his approval, is not solely characterised by this kind of beautiful, beating heart, this vulnerable love and affection. There is a second crucial aspect to gospel community. Point three. You see, the apostle has not just deep affection for the Thessalonians, he also has a goal in his relationship with them. It's not really so much a goal regarding himself, it's not even really a goal regarding them, rather it's a goal for both himself and them in relation to God. You see how he frames the direction of gospel community in verse 12, he says, that you lead a life worthy of God. That you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What the Apostle is saying uh, is this. When you get your spiritual power for community from God, then the direction of that community will be toward God. Gospel community will not only have about it the texture of love, it also has purpose. It has a, a current that pulls, a magnetic pull. That is not first and foremost that people get on with each other, although that will happen. It's not even first and foremost that people are happy together, although there's great joy. That's not the direction of gospel community, the goal. No, it's rather that as a community there is a, a drive, a force, a kind of a push that together we would lead a life worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory a life characterised by the ways of God and his kingdom and his glory. That's the goal. And it's right alongside the love. Again, notice how Paul describes this aspect of gospel community. In verse 11, he uh, changes image again. He writes that he was also like a father among them, urging and encouraging and pleading. And the words here uh, increase in their intensity. Uh, the first, uh, urging, is the starting point. This is about someone um, sh uh, showing someone what the right thing to do is and, and sort of prodding them a little bit in that direction. Uh, the second word, encouraging, maybe exhorting, is a little bit stronger. Um, if there's resistance, then this has about it the idea that you get kind of right up close and personal with someone and have a, a word to them pretty directly. But the third word, pleading, is, is really strong. It's, it's uh, sort of imploring, insisting. 
Um, one translation I saw even has it as making an emphatic demand. And you can see why. Because our fellowship has a direction. Because we face first and foremost not towards each other but towards God, our direction as a community is not first and foremost that we get on with each other but that we more and more and more lead a life worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory. And again, you can see, can't you, why it is that when you play to an audience of one, when the power for your relationships with other people is the fact that you have the approval of the living and true God whom you serve, it means you can risk the approval of the other person when they're not so much living a life worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory, and you'll go to them, initially in urging, and if necessary, right alongside them in encouragement. And ultimately, even in pleading and imploring and insisting. You see how there's sufficient freedom from being worried about the other person's displeasure that you'll do what they need rather than what they might want. And you'll keep pointing them in the direction of a worthy life. And for the apostle, notice that this freedom um, also included actually financial freedom. He insisted on working for his own money when he was in Thessalonica. At other times, he accepted financial support from supporters elsewhere, gifts from them, but never from the people that he was currently ministering to, just to make sure that there was no blurring of the lights. It was all clean. Now, can you see how beautiful gospel community is? This remarkable power from God that fills us because we have his approval so that our hearts are full. It means we have a wonderful confidence in God that enables us to open our hearts to one another in real, deep, loving vulnerability. And at the same time gives us a glorious directedness towards God, driving our engagement with each other so that we live lives that are worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory, risking even the other person's unhappiness. We won't give up on people. We won't ever just let people slide into unworthy patterns and practices and habits for the sake of getting along with each other. We won't ever just say of someone, well, that's just the way they are. They're a bit like that. Love, goal. That's what happens when you play to the audience of one. That's the structure of gospel community. Love and goal. Listen to how this works out in the second letter Paul writes to Thessalonians dealing with one particular aspect of unworthiness. I mean, he writes this, for we hear, this is in chapter 3, uh, we hear that some of you are living in idleness. Okay, there's, a, there's one way to be living a life that's not quite worthy of God and the kingdom and the glory. Idleness, mere busybodies not doing any work. Bludgers! And he goes on, now such persons, verse 12, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter and have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. But don't treat them as enemies 
warn them as believers. Now, can you see how utterly different this is from pseudo-community? Pseudo-community will have either love without goal, oh, we've just got to get on with each other, let's just not worry about anything, just, just be happy together, or it'll have goal without love, if you don't live up to our standards around here, we're just going to kick you out and that's all there is to it. Pseudo-community will have love without goal or goal without love, but either way, pseudo-community always ends up destructive of people and of community. If you have love without goal, what it ends up being is a kind of emotional dependence where you warm your poor little self-esteem at the fire of other people's approval. When you have love without goal, it means what you need desperately is the other person's approval or, or maybe even more darkly, their needing of you. And, and there are classic signs of love without goal in pseudo-community. Um, you, you will never give correction or criticism. You'll be afraid to give correction or criticism because you won't be able to bear people's unhappiness at you. It's interesting, Paul's very distressed by the uh, Thessalonians' unhappiness in Christ, but he can absolutely bear any unhappiness that they might have with him. He gives them pretty fierce instructions, right? If you don't work, don't eat. For most of us, it's the other way around. We don't mind too much if other people are unhappy, just as long as they're not as unhappy at me. But that's to have lost sight of the goal. It's to have lost grip on God's approval. It's to be afraid. And the flip side is true as well when there's love without goal. Not only can't you give correction or criticism, you can't take correction or criticism either. It will devastate you. It outrages you. It crushes you. And of course, the thing is that love without goal is not really love at all, is it? A person is no friend who can't give correction or criticism because they're afraid of you, needy of you. And a person is no friend who can't take criticism. And we won't be a real community where we can't take criticism and so no one gives it. Now, that's just pseudo-community. Real gospel community has about it both love and goal. And that means we'll get messy with each other, even at the risk of other people's disapproval. But on the other hand, if you have goal without love, right, we're going to be this kind of people, and you better be up to standards around here. If you have goal without love, then it becomes a power play and inevitably a judgmental self-righteous, legalistic spirit will emerge. Now, of course, it's a very fine line, isn't it? This having a goal for other people. I think we're just pretty nervous about this idea that we have a goal for other people, that they live lives worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory like the Apostle Paul has. And the reason he's telling us is so that we will share it for each other. It's true that that can easily stray into being a busybody, butting your nose into other people's business in judgmentalism. But judgmentalism is not what Paul's into here. He corrects them. He corrects them because he wants them to live a life worthy. But he says, don't you dare regard any person as an enemy. Warn them as believers. Warn them as a sister or brother in Christ. 
Um, he says the purpose of it is to make them ashamed, which is really to say to wake them up in Christ so that they would lead a life worthy of God. And that is an act of love. But there are some pretty common signs of, of judgmentalism, which is when you have the goal, but without love. When people are victims of judgmentalism, they'll know that what's happening is when the truth is being told to them, it's actually just about revenge. They'll see it, they'll feel it. They're not being told the truth to wake them up, but to pay them back. And again, it's a sign of judgmentalism. You see, that judgmental people really enjoy it. It's very interesting. Judgmental people enjoy They get a kick out of correcting or complaining about others. It feeds something in them. And the third sign of judgmentalism is that um, it's almost inevitable that people who are judgmental will go beyond the evidence. They'll go from the specifics of the situation into generalisations. So you take the situation there in Thessalonica, you see someone being a little bit lazy and, and you've, you've, you've got to go talk to them. You're not going to just let them, you know, that's not, that's not worthy. We care too much about each other to just sort of pretend. You go to them and, and if you're not judgmental, you say, look, I feel like there's, a, there's an issue here. You, you've got to step up. You're being a bit lazy. It's, it's time for you to kind of... But a judgmental person will say... You have no passion for Christ. You're a lazy person who's only interested in yourself. A judgmental person will go beyond the evidence and will impute motives. Or another way to put it is that a judgmental person tells people the truth to push them away. But when you have the approval of God as the power that operates in your soul, you tell people the truth even when it's involving correction or criticism, to bring them closer, to redeem, not to punish. And that changes everything, you see. This is the structure of gospel community. Gospel-powered love, married to a gospel-shaped goal, And then you get gospel-infused community. And it's an extraordinarily powerful thing. It becomes a context in which more and more you will live a life that's worthy of God. I mean, think about that just for a moment, won't you? In all the ups and downs and all the challenges and opportunities that you have in all the relationships and struggles and the work and the resources and capacities in all that you have to at the end of it all to have lived a life that's worthy of God and of his kingdom and of his glory. Would that not just be a fantastic thing? And it's gospel community characterised in this way, this structure of both love and gold powered by the approval of God. That'll be the context in which that kind of worthy life can be lived out more and more and more with each other. 
as we really serve one another. Amen.